Well, I invite you to turn in your sanctuary Bible to, and now I have to get organized because I have both music and my sermon in the same folder, but I think I'm ready. 1070, turn to page 1070 in your sanctuary Bible, and we're looking at John chapter 17, 6 through 19. John chapter 17, 6 through 19. So I'd like to say a few words of introduction before we begin about this passage. And I want to, as I've alluded to, I want to talk about what a name means in the Bible. And a name is actually more than just what people call you by. It has some meaning. There's a rabbinical tradition about what names mean. And I'm going to read to you some of the things that various rabbis have said about a name. One rabbi said, a man acquires one name from his parents, people give him a second, and he wins the third for himself. Which is true, isn't it? That's just a neat saying. Another rabbi said, well with him who leaves the world with a good name. Another said, a good name runs from one end of the earth to the other. True. Or, if in scripture the name of a man is doubled, then he has a share both in this world and in the world to come. Good works and observance of the commandments Make a name great in the world. When we look at a, this idea of a name in the Bible, a name, as I said, is more than just what people call you by. Your name is actually your reputation. Your name is your honor. Uh, and actually, your name is actually the authority that comes with it when somebody acts in the name of somebody else. So you could say, stop in the name of the law, right? We do this now. Or stop in the name of something else. Or I'm doing this in the name of somebody else, like an ambassador would go to another country in the name of their government, and they'd be able to speak for that government and with that government's authority. So that works both in ancient times and now. Your name is more than just your name, it's your reputation. Um, when we're going to read our reading today, I want us to be thinking of that sense of the name as being more than just what you're called by, by but your reputation. And I want to note something that's right off the bat in verse, cha- uh, verse 6 of chapter 17. In our Bible, if you have the Sanctuary Bible on page 1070, it says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. I'm not going to read the whole thing yet, but I just want to point this out. Now, if you're looking along, you'll notice that there's the letter A after the word you, which is those bold-faced letters that you should find in your NIV text are what are called text notes or translators, translator's notes. And it's, those are given to us when the translators tell us that there's something important about what, their work was, what was happening with their work. Either there's an alternative reading in other texts, which is rare but sometimes happens, or it gives us some insight into what they were thinking when they made this translation. And actually, if you look at the footnote, it says, in actuality, the Greek there is your name. So it should be, I have revealed your name to those whom you gave me out of the world. So what is Jesus saying here? He's not just saying, I've revealed you, but that's correct. You meaning your reputation, the entirety or totality of who you are. He is saying that. But also, I've revealed your name into the whole world. And actually, I think the NIV made a good move here. Because it's, it's saying more than just the actual name of God, like Yahweh or the Lord or any of those names that we have for God. Not some secret name of God that was revealed to the disciples by Jesus, but actually his reputation and the authority and the power that comes through his name. So that's just a note there that the text actually says, 
I have revealed your name to those whom you gave me out of the world. But I actually like this translation. I think it's, it captures it a little bit better. So today, this passage that we're looking at is in John chapter 17 is part of what's known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's right at the Last Supper. It's right before Jesus dies. And Jesus is doing something a little unusual, a little awkward. He's praying to God directly for his friends who are there with him and just simply listening along, which would feel a little strange, but it's that intercessory type of thing he's doing on behalf of them. It's an intermediary type of role, and that's why sometimes it's called the high priestly prayer, because it has this intermediary type of function. So he's praying to the Father that they'll be protected by the power of the Father's name. And he's praying this because he's about to go die himself, and they themselves are about to be tested by this whole, whole ordeal of his crucifixion. And beyond that, they're going to be tested and sent out into the world to proclaim the gospel. And it's not going to be easy for them. In fact, we see elsewhere in John's gospel, he tells, you know, he says, the world hates you. The world hates you because of me. The world does not like you. This is going to be a tough go. And so I'm going to pray for you now so that you can be sustained as you go out. So he evokes God's name for protection and covering for them. And as I mentioned earlier, be open as we read to look, listen for how God's name is used in this passage, but also be open that this power and protection that comes from God's name actually ends up looking different than what we might expect and be open to how different that is. So if that's cryptic enough for you, I hope it is, or I hope it's not, uh, let's go to our reading. John chapter 17, 6 through 19. Jesus prays. To the Father. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world, the disciples. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost, except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now. But I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world." My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, we're coming up on the, uh, this may be, mean nothing to you, but we're coming up on the 38th anniversary of the theatrical release of Star Wars. May 25th, 1977. And I'm probably one of the few people in this room who actually went to it when it opened. Who else went to the show when it opened? Yes, yes, yeah. How old are you? Okay, I was seven years old when it opened, and I'm 45. You went when it opened. Not, not the repeats. Not, all right, right, Gary, yes. All right. Okay, so I was seven years old. My brother, who at the time was 11, and this was summer, so it was like about a few weeks after it opened, after the crowds died down just a bit. But we went in the middle of the day. My brother and I left the house. We walked through a mile of desert. This is Tucson, Arizona. To get to this movie theater, crossed a busy street. Uh, where My mom allowed this. Does this seem odd? An 11-year-old taking his 7-year-old brother to the movies? Walking, walking there? Why didn't she drive us? I don't understand this, but... Uh, so we got there, we plunked down our $1.50 for the, movie, for the tickets, and we bought some popcorn, we sat in the movie, and we watched this movie, and it was, like nothing, you know, it was like nothing we had ever seen before. We were so blown away. And so we sat, we didn't get up, we sat through the credits, and then the, the theater lights came on, uh, and uh, then somebody came in and swept up all the popcorn that we had spilled on the floor in front of us, and just you know, kind of passed us cleaned up the rest of the theater. We could hear the sound of the, the film being rewound sort of behind us and reset for the next showing. Um, other people started coming in. The lights went down. They started showing previews for other movies. And then we just watched the whole movie one more time. <laughs> and um, we were sort of like, we were gone for five hours. And I, st- I do really do not remember my parents going, where were you? You know, they just, oh, you're back, okay, well. And um, we liked it that much. And uh, actually, I wrote, I wrote George Lucas an email to his Lucasfilms publicity. And I, I wrote this, because my conscience is hurting me. Dear George, when I was seven years old, my brother and I walked a mile through the desert to see Star Wars. This was the summer of 1977. We liked it so much, we stayed in the theater and watched it a whole second time without paying again at the ticket counter. My conscience would be salved if I could pay you for the screening. The theater on North Oracle Road in Tucson, Arizona is no longer there. It's like an office supply store. I don't know who to give the money to. So I'm not sure who to send the money to. I think the admission was $1.50. With interest over the years, the amount I owe has perhaps grown a bit. Let me know what I can do. All the best. Hans Eric Nelson, Mountain View, California. So I'll let you know if George Lucas gets back to me and asks for quick Zach, how much is $1.50 compounded? Between now and then, it's like 100 bucks or something like that? 950 Not much? Okay. I can afford it. I owe him. Or I could just pay him the cost of a movie ticket now. It'd be about right, wouldn't it? So we'll see. I'll, I will keep you posted as to how that turns out. Um, there were two lines that I really remember from that movie. All right? And the first one is great when you're a pastor. Who, who can guess what the good line to remember if you're a pastor from that movie is? It's a a line from Darth Vader. I find your lack of faith disturbing. (laughs) Pastors say that all the time. They don't. But then, actually, there was this central moment in the film when when Obi... If you have never seen Star Wars, I apologize. Just 
bear with me. Perhaps you've never seen it. You thought it was ridiculous, and it, it is kind of ridiculous. But there was this other central moment in the film when Obi-Wan Kenobi is fighting Darth Vader, and he keeps Darth Vader engaged in this lightsaber battle so that the other people in the movie can get away and make an escape. So he kind of sacrifices himself in that moment. And at one point, he stops, when it's all clear, pretty much, he stops fighting. He, he lifts his sword up into a sort of a passive position. And he says, Darth Vader, if you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. Does anyone remember that line, too? That's like, and that's a very unusual thing to say. Like, well, what does that mean? How does that, how does that work out? And it, it was surprising to people, like, how did he really die? Because he kind of disappeared. He seemed like he disappeared before, and there, his body wasn't there after he got cut in half. He was just nothing. So what happened? Well, we kind of understand later, if you, if you are in tune with the Star Wars universe, that he kind of left the physical world and went into some other plane of existence. Now, Star Wars is not real. I mean, you know what I mean? It's like the, the, the theology behind Star Wars is actually some kind of weird Eastern mysticism, honestly. So it's, but he does become more powerful in a weird way in the movie and in future movies, future installments of the story. He's able to guide various people throughout uh, in, in sort of this disembodied voice. And so he actually does become more powerful than Darth Vader could possibly imagine. It, it, it's, it's a different kind of power. So it, it kind of makes sense. So, anyways, uh, we'll come back to that. Believe it or not, this Star Wars story has some, it has some bearing on the Bible. Can you believe that? <laughs> the, yeah. Plus, if you owe somebody some money, you know, write them a letter, see what they say. No, I'm kidding. You can do, do what you want. So I want to look at power in the name of God. And I look at, take a look at verse 11 in, in um, the Bible that you have. Jesus says, uh, please, uh, Father, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me. And also so that, protect them, but also so that they can be one. So there's a, there's a reason for that protection. And uh, there was, like I said, in that world, a, a sense that when you're operating in another person's name, you're operating with their authority and with the benefit of their reputation. So God has... Authority, God has a reputation. And for them, your reputation was really, it was everything. We, we have another name for this when we talk about it. We talk about the honor-shame sort of idea in, in the, that ancient Near East world, which was far more important to you than actual money. Your name, your reputation, your honor, was something that would open many doors for you. Or if you didn't have it, many doors would be closed to you. And it wouldn't really matter if you had money sometimes. Because if your honor was poor, you, you had a lot of dead ends in life. But if your honor was good, it was, it was a good thing. And so reputation was really a lot. So to, do, to have God's reputation and have the authority and power of God's name placed on them by Jesus in this prayer is huge. It really would mean a lot. So Jesus reveals God's name to the disciples. He imbues them or he sort of invests them with the reputation and authority of God and he asked the Father in that name to protect them by the power of his name so that they can go out and be one and spread the gospel into the world. And so this was a huge thing that Jesus was asking this in this moment. This is really a pivotal, pivotal moment in the gospel of John where Jesus is 
investing this huge amount of power and authority in his disciples. He's, he's blessing them with this name of God, and, and he's asking them to have the power of God to walk around with them, almost like a cloak around them, or, or even armor. Just this idea of protection. So, you would then perhaps expect that with this armor of God on, that the disciples would then leave that room and be completely invincible and completely powerful. Wouldn't you expect that? I mean, God's power has been invested in them. But what's funny about the Bible is that that didn't happen, did it? They left that place, Jesus got arrested, and almost all of them just ran away. Now, this is not what people with power and protection do. That this, is, this is what people who don't have that do. And they went out into the world, and we, as we find out by tradition, um, all except for the, God, uh, the disciple John, almost all of these people finally went out and were martyred for their faith. They were all put to death in various grisly ways because of their proclamation of the gospel. So the sense that God's power and protection and authority was following them around after they left this place, we need to think about that a little bit. I'm not saying it didn't. I'm just saying it didn't follow them around in the way that we think it might have. I want to talk about that a little bit. And this is where I think it all comes together. Um, so when we talk about God's power and God's reputation, there's something that we often forget. And I think Christians in every century, but also this century, do this. We always forget these things about God. That God's power, as it's been revealed through Jesus, is not the kind of power that we normally see in the world. It, it's not the kind of power that you can use to make other people do things that they don't want to do. It's not a coercive power. It's not a power to move things around or move people around. It's not power that can win a war, for example. It's not a weapon like that. It can't put a criminal in jail. God's power can't do that. It can't, make your, it can't make you safe. It doesn't actually protect you in that way. This power can't be used to produce wealth. There's a lot of Christians who are telling their followers that God's power can be used to produce wealth. Would you like to? I could start preaching that way if you want me to. I actually, I, I can't start preaching that way, even if you asked me to. I mean, if I wanted a private jet like that guy, maybe. But no. It, that, that God's power does not produce wealth. It, it doesn't win wars. It doesn't keep us safe. It doesn't produce wealth. It doesn't do those things. All the things that Jesus, these are things that Jesus' followers are trying to accomplish in the name of God with his authority and by the benefit of his reputation. But none of those kinds of power and authority are, are the kinds that have been promised to us in Jesus Christ. Because what we find when we look at the life of Jesus is Jesus himself doesn't operate that way. He has all the power in the universe at his fingertips, but he never coerces anyone. He never turns it into wealth for himself. He never deals with dangerous people by destroying them or locking them up or anything like that. And he doesn't protect himself with that power. When they come for him, he says, don't you know that I could ask my father and a legion of angels would come and protect me? Which is true. But he doesn't ask for that. He doesn't want that to happen. So actually, the way Jesus operates is that his power is very low in most people's eyes. And his reputation is terrible 
because he spends time in table fellowship with other people who have terrible reputations, and their reputations rub off on him. So we're talking about power, authority, and reputation. Jesus is actually at the very low end of all of these things when he's doing his earthly ministry. So when he's blessing his disciples with that same power, authority, uh, and reputation, it's, it's not as grand as some of them might have thought it was. Uh, we have one example. When the people came to take Jesus away, just look what I was saying, he says, you know, the angels could come, come to protect me. Instead of relying on God for God to work this situation out, whatever it is, Peter takes initiative of his own power and pulls out a sword. And he cuts off the ears of one of the, the, the high priest's servants. And Jesus isn't pleased about this. He's angry about this. He doesn't want this to be how he fights back against these earthly authorities. So he actually takes that ear and he sticks it back on the guy's head. And when I was a kid, that was like one of the more interesting parts of the Bible. Like, here you go. You know, now you can hear again. It is great. It's, it's, a, it's only in one of the Gospels, but there it is. He sticks it back on. Um, he doesn't want to bring about what's to be accomplished on the cross by force. He wants to go to the cross without violent opposition of his own. And so there is one power and authority that he says he has. And we saw this when we looked at John chapter 10. If you may remember this. When he talks about himself as the good shepherd, he talks about his life being taken. And he says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority and power to lay down my own life and authority and power to take it up again. This I have from my father. That's the power that Jesus has in this world. This is the most important part right here. The power that Jesus has is in the laying down of his own life. That's his power. You know, you could think of like superheroes and they have the power to fly or they have the power to turn invisible or they have the power to bend things or whatever. If Jesus was a superhero, his superpower would be, I can lay down my own life. Which actually anybody could do, right? But that's his power. I can lay down my own life and I can take it up again or God will take, take me up again. What kind of power is this? This is a weird kind of power. A self-serving, a self-sacrificing kind of power. It doesn't look like the power that we see in the world. The coercive power that we're used to. I want to tell you about one exception to this. And this is an important exception. I'm talk I've been talking so far about the physical world. All right? So Jesus doesn't fight. Jesus doesn't use violence. Jesus doesn't use coercion. He doesn't generate physical wealth. All that's in the physical realm. But in the spiritual realm, it does seem like Jesus and his disciples actually have absolute power, which is great news. This is actually very good news for us. So have you ever noticed that when Jesus meets the demonic in another person, he always has absolute power to end that oppression. So Jesus can say to the demons, be gone, and they're gone. Or he can tell them to go run into a flock of, uh, or a herd of pigs, and those pigs will jump off a cliff and drown, right? Uh, or he'll tell them to be quiet because they're speaking his name, and he doesn't want his name to be told to anyone just yet, his identity. And these demons know God's name, and they know God's power, and they're aware of it. It's so funny that the demonic actually understands God's true power, and they're terrified of it. 
And so in the demonic realm, in the spiritual realm, Jesus does actually have the kind of power, the kind of coercive power to stop things and remove things and move things. So just set that aside. But in the physical realm, it's different. It's different in the physical realm. And I want to introduce this concept to you, that Jesus' power and the power in God's name that he wants to protect his friends with is not overt power, but it's subversive power. I'm going to say that again. It's subversive power. Now, I want to stop right there because I know that word subversive is potentially a negative word. Does anyone have a negative sort of feeling about the word subversive? Yeah, yeah, because, yeah, right. Subversive, and I'm, I'll tell you what the definition of to subvert is from the dictionary. Um, it means to undermine the power and authority of an established system or institution. So, for example, if you were to subvert a democratically elected government, that would be considered bad, right? That would be considered, that's how we think of subversive, right? That's a bad thing. Um, but listen, I want you to open up yourself to the possibility that the idea that subversive could be a good thing. If what's being subverted, subverted is truly evil. Are you okay with that at least? Are you okay with subverting the evil, right? We don't like subverting good things, but subverting evil, I'm all for that, all right? So if what is being subverted is a bad thing, subverting it is a good option for people who don't actually have physical power. Is that right? That's the only thing they can do is they can subvert it. They can be subversive against an oppressive and unjust established system or institution. So Jesus does this. Jesus is subversive to institutions and organizations. He does this. Um, and one example is, has to do with this idea of reputation, for example. In that world, your reputation was everything. If you, were, if you had a good reputation, it didn't actually matter if you were a good person or a bad person. If you had a good reputation, you were thought well of, and all sorts of doors would open for you. If you had a bad re reputation, even if you were a good person, all these doors would be closed to you. And you weren't treated as equals. If you had more honor than somebody else, then they were less than you in that, in that world. And so um, that, was no, that was no good in Jesus' eyes. So what did Jesus do? He had dinner with some Pharisees. They invited him over. They said, this guy looks like an interesting teacher. I'm gonna, we're going to ask him what he thinks. We're going to treat him as an equal to us. So we're going to have table fellowship with him. That's what table fellowship meant is you would have a meal with people who were more or less your equals in the honor system, in their reputation system. So they had him over for dinner, and they, they talked, and Jesus said some things they didn't like, but they gave, he gave them something to think about. Just a little while later, Jesus went and had table fellowship with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. And by doing that, Jesus said to them, my honor and your honor are equal. And so the Pharisees put two and two together and they said, wait, if we're equal with Jesus and Jesus is equal, oh, no, this is not good. If Jesus is equal with the sinners, then we're equal with the sinners in Jesus' economy, in Jesus' system. Well, Jesus has to die. And that was one of the reasons they put him to death. And so he was subverting just by who he chose to eat with. He was subverting this system of honor and shame. And so that, that was a good thing. Actually, that was a good thing. It sought to undermine a deeply entrenched social system that was designed to keep everybody in their place, which is great. 
But there's some more examples that Jesus, that Jesus did. We, I'm not going to explore them completely, but ways in which Jesus was subversive to establish systems or to establish ways of doing things. So, for example, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. And that subverts the idea that force will always win. It's amazing. Or this idea that servanthood is the path to greatness. That subverts what is, even his followers were saying, well, which of one, is the great, which one of us is the greatest? Which one of us is going to sit at your right hand and your left when we get to heaven? And Jesus says, that's nothing. Serve each other. That's his subversive move there. Serve each other. The one who serves is the greatest among them. And then he put on a towel around his waist, and at before the Last Supper in John's Gospel, he washes the disciples' feet, and he shows them what subversive servanthood looks like. The greatest among them, Jesus, washes the feet of all the rest of them, including Judas, who is going to betray him. Amazing. The history of the church from this point on is one story of subversiveness after the other. It's really beautiful. It's, it, you may not think it's beautiful, but it's really beautiful. The Romans didn't know what to do with the Christians. They had no idea what to do with these people. I mean, the Romans knew what to do with people who were in open rebellion, with people who waged war against them. And, and what, what did the Romans do when somebody waged war against them? They took all their forces and they went all out and they would destroy it completely and just demolish it. So, for example, Rome finally defeated Carthage after many, 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 many wars. And to keep Carthage from ever rising again, they, they leveled all of Carthage and then they sowed salt into the farmland all around Carthage so that it could never be used to produce food. And the, and the, the message was, this is what we do to our enemies, our military enemies. We destroy them so much that they can never come back. But how do you do that to an idea? How do you do that to a subversive movement whose goal is to love the world? They had no idea to, they, to, what to do with these people. Because here are the Christians. They're meeting for prayer and study. They're encouraging good works. Masters and slaves were both part of the same church, and so the social order was being subverted even in the Roman Empire. It's really amazing. And we have records that Christians, even though the Romans hated them, they had to grudgingly admire them. Because they would say things like, well, a big plague came along and everybody left. The sick people there to die. Except the Christians stayed and took care of them. And a lot of the Christians got sick and died too. Why are the Christians acting like this? That's crazy. But that's that subversive love and servanthood that Christians would do in the Roman Empire. And so the Romans would try to make up lies about the Christians. And that never worked. And then at various times, Christians would be rounded up and killed by the Romans thinking, you know, this is how we're going to do it. If we kill enough of them, the rest will give up, right? The story of the persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire is, is something that we don't really hear about very much, but they were thrown to the lions to be eaten alive. They were crucified. Romans continued to love crucifixion as a way of executing people. They were set on fire like human torches to light up the night skies of Rome. This is what happened. And every time they did that, they're like, okay, that, it's like cockroaches. Christians are like cockroaches, and I mean this in the best possible way, okay? You stomp on them, you try to get them, they just keep coming back. What's going on with these Christians? I can't understand. Why do they keep coming? This is subversive 
spiritual power and physical power is never a match for it. Over the long haul, it's always more, more powerful than physical power. Do you all feel like being subversive now? Doesn't that sound great? I know you don't feel like being lit up like a human torch maybe, but, but it's, it's so much stronger. It, it has lasting power. This is what the Christians were saying to the Romans. Strike me down and I will become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. And they never could imagine the power that came from that subversive spiritual servanthood that Christians had for each other and for the rest of the world. Finally, so many people in the Roman Empire became Christians that actually more than half of the people in the Roman Empire were Christians. And it was impossible to stamp them out. And so actually the, the Emperor Constantine, the, the first Christian emperor of Rome, probably converted to Christianity more out of just pragmatism. He's like, I can't beat them. I've got to join them. So he became a Christian. He's like, all right, this is the new, this is the new normal. We're going to do this now. Of course, guess what happened then? Then the church started having real power, and it corrupted the church. So that's a different story. So that's, a, that's just a kind of a reminder. And it's been a real long go since then that we've had a real problem. It's like the church became like Peter in the garden, and it picked up its own sword. And if Jesus could have spoken to the church in the 5th century, it would have said, don't do that. Don't stop. I don't want my gospel to be spread in that way. But uh, people weren't interested in that. Some were. Over the years, there were various prophets, even in the, in the Christian church. Well, we have this tradition that the remaining apostles, except for John, were martyred. These were people that Jesus asked the Father to protect by the power of his name. And you may be asking, what does this mean to us? What does this mean? Because we too have this name. We are like in that room with Jesus. Jesus is praying to the Father on our behalf. Father, reveal your name to these people all of us in this room. Protect them by your power, the power of your name, so that they might be one. Protect them in this world because the world hates them. So, I don't know if you're going to like hearing this, but you have the protection of God's name and reputation as you go out into this world. But God has a terrible reputation in this world. <laughs> God is not well thought of. Uh, I don't necessarily recommend it, but there's a show on, on HBO called, um, it's called Silicon Valley. Did anyone see the most recent episode? And, and one guy was taking a pitch from these startup, these kids that wanted to do a startup company, and it was these, the idea that these Christian kids would walk somebody's dog. And the guy taking the pitch said, don't you know that in California it's practically illegal to be a Christian already? So I'm not really interested in your app, you know, that's this idea. And it's just so funny because that's like the reflection of where our culture is. God has an incredibly poor reputation. And so if you're going to go out in God's name, you're going to share his reputation. Well, I guess we have to deal with it. I think maybe we can rehabilitate God's reputation. We can make God's reputation worse by trying to use God's name for coercive means. That would be a mistake. That would make things worse. But we have to get used to the idea that the world will not love us because we proclaim the gospel. In fact, if the world starts to congratulate us too much, I start to get worried. 
it means that we've probably compromised on something, particularly the gospel and what it says. So, God's name does protect us. Please be assured of that. God's name protects us, and the power of his name will protect us from the thing that we should fear the most, which is not being found faithful to what we've been called to. God will protect us from that. We've also been called to be subversive. I want everyone in here to be a subversive person this week, all right? Uh, I'm not saying we overthrow our government and start a rebellion or that we become anarchists. I am not saying that. But that we subvert, subvert, which means we seek to undermine the power and authority of all the powers in this world that have set themselves up as rivals to God, starting with ourselves. All right? The most subversive and faithful thing that we can do is to continue to proclaim the gospel in this world. The world absolutely hates it, and our human nature hates it too. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. You know, the gospel calls us to this radical equality with each other as equally despicable sinners who need grace, and it calls us to lay down our lives in servant friendship to each other. And it tells us to put down our swords and stop controlling other people and instead be controlled by God's spirit. That's subversive living. And in the end, this is the good news, is we realize that it takes time. Rome, it took 325 years for Rome to turn. It could take, this country's not even that old yet, all right? It could take a while. And when it turns, it's not because we're going to turn it with force or we're not going to turn it in the ballot box. It's going to turn because people catch what we have. They will admire what we do, grudgingly at first, but in the end they'll be brought into the fold. God is going to use the power of his name in us to bring about the ends of all sorts of evil things, but we may not even see it in our lifetime. So you have to have faith beyond your own death that God may do something in this world because of us and in us. And I think we can truly say then, as Jesus would say, if you cut me down, I'll become far more powerful in ways that you simply can't imagine. Powerful not to defeat you as God's enemies, as I'm speaking to the world now, but powerful enough to win you over as God's newest friends. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask that you would add your blessing to it in our lives this week as we seek to become subversive people for you. In Jesus' name, amen.